the Chugach Mountains ring Elmendorf Air Force Base. They begin at Anchorage and run for hundreds of miles, getting steeper, higher, and glaciated between here and Juneau. Search planes are flying near the coast and over glaciers on the hopes the plane detoured from the flight path to sightsee. The weather has been so bad that small planes have been limited in the areas they can search. Most of the searching has been done by the bigger Air Force planes flying at 20,000 feet. They're equipped with electronic locators that may be able to pick up the beeps from the locator beacon in the missing plane. One pilot was asked how the weather was in the search area. Clouds are uh, overcast from about 3,000 uh, in areas up to 4,500 in other areas. And terrible turbulence in some spots. Just absolutely turned the airplane upside down to quite smooth in others. So it's very unpredictable presently. We... Major Stalker, the aircraft in question left Anchorage over 24 hours ago. Have you heard anything at all from it? No, we have not. Uh, we've had aircraft searching during the last 24 hours, and we've failed to come up with any positive uh, sightings or reports at this time. The flight plan was over 500 miles. Have you narrowed it down at all? No, not yet. Uh, the aircraft hadn't reported into any station along the way. The last transmission was shortly after taking off from uh, Anchorage International. You don't feel that your search effort so far has cut down the areas you have left to search? No, not yet. Uh, probably uh, what we've done through the night is an electronic search and they had a search, uh, emergency locator beacon on board the aircraft and it hasn't as yet made any transmissions. Uh, weather in the search area has been bad, is continuing to be bad and may be a problem uh, for the next couple days. From iHeartMedia, this is Missing in Alaska, the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972, and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walczak. Dawn broke on October 17, 1972, with much of southeast Alaska engulfed in a swirling tempest of snow and fog. Dozens of planes and boats stood ready to search for Congressman Hale Boggs and Nick Begich, who had vanished the day before somewhere between Anchorage and Juneau. If only the weather would clear. Terry Holiday was a pilot based in the small town of Cordova on Prince William Sound. And then the next day when the search began, we didn't, uh, I was the first responder from the Cordova side, and I only got halfway across the sound before I ran into a wall of snow, and I just kept working my way towards Whittier, I had a state trooper with me, and I was in a beaver on floats, and um, which gave me an optional landing about anywhere. But it was snowing really hard. The water was white, covered with, with snow on top of the salt water. It was not nice. As snow hampered much of the search effort, attention turned to hundreds of tips that flowed in from the public, including one in particular, which intrigued Air Force officials. Overnight, in the tiny town of Nevada City, California, thousands of miles to the south, a man named Roy Harris had picked up a frantic transmission on his ham radio. He heard this plane call on for Mayday, and they were over water, but they were close to land. He was trying to get as close to land as he could. Evidently, engine problems or something was my understanding. What was repeated to me from Mr. Harris. That's former Nevada City Police Chief James Moon, 
who took reports from several local men who heard a garbled transmission of a pilot begging for help. They notified me of what they heard of the plane going down. Said they were close to some island or, or land, anyhow, and they were going down. And they kind of give a description of where they thought they were. And I notified the uh, Sacramento authorities and they came, uh, I, I set up a meeting between them and the ham operators, and they took a report. That's the last I knew of it. Moon spoke with Al Miller, a ham operator and retired painting contractor, who heard the pilot say, frantically, this is Alaska Mobile needing assistance. The pilot told Miller he was 12 miles southwest of Juneau, battling 70 mile per hour headwinds, and had only eight minutes of gas left. He said he was flying a Cessna 310, the same model as the missing plane, and that he had landed earlier in the day at a remote airstrip to ride out bad weather before taking off once more for Juno. The pilot broadcast his tail number, but the transmission was garbled. Miller heard N, A1, and A2. Then, oh my God, we're going to hit the rocks. I'm out of gas. I'm heading down. This is it. A few minutes later, the pilot told Miller that the plane had crashed near Juneau. Then one final transmission in Morse code. We need help. Everyone was injured, but alive. In addition to Harris and Miller, at least three and possibly four other men heard the transmission. But were they telling the truth? Chief Moon believed them. So too did Air Force Major George Eldridge, who spoke with one of them by phone. The Air Force decided to fly them to Alaska. After interviewing them in person, Major Henry Stocker, the search commander, spoke to the press, saying the transmission was real, but that the person who broadcast it was likely a hoaxer, a, quote, sadistic person. For years, I tried to find the ham operators. Two have died, and I can't locate the other four. National accounts of the mysterious transmission mainly quoted Al Miller, the retired painting contractor, Past that, there's not much to go on. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the Air Force, but didn't find many new details. But late last year, I got some help. Tracy Lilliquist, a Nevada City librarian, dug up an article that ran in the local paper, The Union, in 1972, which quoted Roy Harris, another of the ham operators. That allowed me to compare Harris and Miller's contemporaneous accounts to look for inconsistencies. I only found two. First, Miller heard the pilot say he had only eight minutes of gas left. Harris heard 14. As for the garbled tail number, Miller heard N, A1, and A2. Harris heard NC12. Otherwise, their stories line up. In the Union article, Harris was also quoted as saying that the operators had beamed in on the signal and that it was coming from the direction of Juno. To me though, what's most interesting is what Miller heard of the tail number. Remember, this was the night the congressman vanished, before their tail number had been widely shared. Again, Miller heard what sounded like N-A-1-A-2. The tail number of the missing plane was N-1-8-1-2-H. Seventy-two hours after the plane vanished, searchers finally caught a break. 
In southern Alaska today, the search continued for House Democratic leader Hale Boggs and three other men. Weather conditions in the area were greatly improved. The four men were in a light plane which disappeared on Monday on a flight from Anchorage to Juneau. The search now centers around Port Portage Pass, southeast of Anchorage. The sky turned blue around Anchorage, Alaska, and suddenly it was possible to see what storm and fog had so treacherously masked, the Portage Pass. Now the rescue teams could effectively scan the most likely area of the accident from the air. I don't know if the weather clears up there at the pass, I think. Yeah. Alpine troops began reconnaissance missions into the ice and snowbound areas and onto the ice of the Portage Glacier itself. At the Air Force's Rescue Coordination Center, which has saved 2,300 lives in a 10-year period already, every effort that might help find and save the four missing men was orchestrated. We're looking for fires, either survival fires, campfires, or emergency signal fires. Anything that may indicate where the aircraft is. Uh, they are coming back now. It, it is now daylight, and they have returned, and they have nothing to report as yet. Congressman Boggs' tragedy was an old story to Alaskans. This was the 384th rescue mission just this year. The Air Force was well aware that intense attention was focused on its rescue operations. The most involved spectator of all was Mrs. Hale Boggs, who drove out to the Portage Glacier to see for herself the dreadful force of nature which seemed to have claimed her husband. The chances seemed slim, but Mrs. Boggs said she still believed her husband would be found. Shortly before Lindy Boggs flew to Anchorage, she had received a call from President Nixon. Yes, Mrs. Boggs, uh, the wife of the majority leader? Yes, sir. Hello? Mrs. Boggs. Mr. President? I know this is a very hard time for you and your family, but I wanted you to know that Mrs. Nixon and I are thinking about you, and uh -huh. we're just praying that out in that snow they're going to uh, they're gonna find him uh, walking around up there. Nixon also called Peggy Begich. Hello. Yes, sir. Mrs. Begich, she is the wife of the congressman from Alaska who was missing. Yes, sir. Hello. Mrs. Begich, sir. Hello. Hello. I wanted you to know I, I talked to Mrs. Boggs earlier today that uh, Mrs. Nixon and I were are thinking of you and just hoping for the best on your trip. That's a, uh, that uh, was a terrible shock. 
In Alaska, a reporter asked Major Stalker, the search commander, if he had enough manpower and aircraft. Uh, we have uh, more than enough to do the mission. Uh, we have 10 HC-130s, uh, various configurations. They're all search-qualified aircraft. We have enough crews. We have the CAP with a, an abundance resource of light aircraft. We have helicopters. We have Coast Guard. We even have a Coast Guard cutter available to us. We have the forces necessary to do the mission. The search initially focused on Portage Pass, a narrow gap through towering, snow-covered mountains just 50 miles southeast of Anchorage. Okay, uh, and you know Little Portage Pass? Mm-hmm. I can't tell you. I can't tell you how many airplane crashes we've had in Portage Pass. I can't tell you how many friends I've lost in Portage Pass. Doesn't, it looks very benign, but what happens is, you know, you fly to the end of turning an arm out of Anchorage, and then you're going to pop over Portage Pass into the sound, and that thing gets socked in with fog, and it's just like flying into the black hole. Teresa Gerson, who we heard from in Episode 1, has been a flight attendant for nearly 30 years. In 1972, she was a young volunteer for the Civil Air Patrol. So in our state of extreme weather conditions, extreme weather conditions, which is something I need to talk about, is that in leaving Anchorage to fly to Juneau, you fly past the largest ice field. And, and what happens is that the wind just roars down the glacier. When we say, oh my goodness, it's gusting 97 on the hill today. Most places, that would be a hurricane or something. Here, it's just a big wind. So with knowing the, knowing the route from Anchorage to Juneau and flying past this huge glacier, with, which makes its own weather, you can only imagine what they might have run into. The missing plane was supposed to follow a specific route V317, which would have taken it through Portage Pass, over Prince William Sound, and on to Juneau. It's hard to fully grasp the vast beauty of Prince William Sound and the fjords, mountains, glaciers, and islands that fill it and surround it without looking at a map. So maybe pause for a minute and pull it up on your phone. And while you're at it, also look up Portage Pass. On the morning of October 16th, Donald Mellish, who had hosted a fundraiser for the congressman the night before, was driving with his two sons on his way to the Kenai Peninsula to go canoeing when he spotted a dark veil on the horizon. As we headed, then we drive right towards that Portage Pass, and I could look at, you know, the terrible winds along this place, along the water there, Cook Inlet. There's terrible winds, and uh, there's just a boiling black mass in this Portage Pass. And I thought to myself, holy cow, you know, they probably didn't, fly that day, but they did, and uh, but anyway, I remember that because I had to get out of the car every half hour and check my load uh, to make sure I didn't blow the canoe off the top of the car, just blowing that hard. That morning, only 20 minutes before the congressman took off, an Air Force helicopter had abandoned an attempt to cut through the pass after encountering severe turbulence. In November 2014, curious to see the pass for myself, I flew to Anchorage and chartered a small plane. At the time, I only had my crappy phone to record some audio. From the air, on a clear, sunny day, the pass and surrounding mountains are stunning. 
Emerging from the pass, I looked below and spotted the tiny town of Whittier, nestled between mountains and sea. A day later, wanting to see the pass from the ground too, I parked at a trailhead near Whittier and hiked into the mountains alone. Today is November 6, 2014, and I'm standing right in the middle of Portage Pass in Alaska, about 50 miles southeast of Anchorage. I hiked all the way up here and saw footsteps in the snow part of the way and now I don't see anything. I don't think anybody's been up here in a little while. It's 21 degrees and haven't seen anybody since I got here. The pass is bookended on one side by mountains and a massive glacier and on the other by Prince William Sound. Between the Sound and the pass sits Whittier, population 205, a town accustomed to raging storms. Whittier has fierce weather, and I really mean fierce. It can snow so hard <clears throat> that I've, several times I've seen the geese had to land because they couldn't get through the pass either. They were sitting on every light post, every every place, tree, uh, how, uh, cars, everything else. And the, the snowflakes will be as big as my hand sometimes, just waffling down. Dorothea Taylor, a retired teacher, lived in Whittier for several years in the 1960s and 70s. And the mountains are high on each, all around, and they're glaciated. Well, that wind comes pitching in there from either side. It will come blow like crazy from the ocean side uh, for a long time, and then uh, it will get just as much force coming through the pass, and it keeps doing that, trying to equalize the pressure. So yeah, they have big storms, they have big snows, they have lots of rain, but when it's a beautiful day, that is the most beautiful place you ever saw. At 94 years old, Taylor is a fearless woman. In 2012, at the age of 86, she garnered international attention when she saved her husband from a rampaging moose, hitting it with a shovel until it ran off. In 1972, right after the congressman disappeared, she led a group of her students into the surrounding mountains to look for the missing plane. We were dressed appropriately, and we went out and started hiking up the mountain. And we had the binoculars and lunch and whatever you need. And then we got fogged in up there. Yes, we were up there for probably an hour, just sitting in place. I said, don't anybody move. Just stay right where you are, and we'll just talk and that, but we won't move until the fog starts to go. About an hour later, it started to move out, but it was so thick you couldn't see anything there for that hour. We were, we were quite a ways up. It was very steep up there. And uh, the kids did very well. And we looked, and then they cleared up, and we could use our binoculars and and they're pretty good at looking for things when they live out in the bush like that. But we never did see anything. As Taylor and her students searched Portage Pass on foot, Angus Lind, a reporter who had flown in from New Orleans, was high above in a military plane. I hooked up with the Alaskan Air Command. They said, yeah, we can take you up tomorrow morning. I said, great. So I got on and asked the captain. I said, how long are we going to be up? He says, well, we got enough fuel for eight hours. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. <laughs> eight hours yeah. in an airplane. We weren't up eight, but we were up 
maybe six and a half, something like that. That's a long flight, you know. And uh, he said, "Don't worry, there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of barf bags on board," <laughs> because what it is, it's a it's a visual search. So you'd be you'd fly up. I mean, you're literally doing this. You'd fly up the side of a mountain and down the side of a mountain, you know, into a a pass, maybe a glacial pass, and then back up, and you'd just repeat it. As I remember, John, they, they were assigned areas to go search. Yeah. And, I mean, that was all drawn out on maps before they took off. Here's where you're searching today. So it's not like they just took off on a goose chase, you know, saying we're going to go take a look at, hey, why don't we go over there? It's not like jumping from fishing spot yeah. to fishing spot, you know, when you're, you're in a boat. But uh, When Lind got back to Anchorage, he went to a library to do some background research. I said, look, I'm... I'm interested in, you know, the history of this, uh, you know, the bush pilots and plane wrecks and, you know, private plane wrecks. And says, okay, I can put you something together. I said, okay. So when I showed up at the library, there was like a, you know, one of these fold-out tables that the guy had set up for me. And it was loaded with a loose-leaf, uh, you know, scrapbooks like this, okay. like loaded. He said, this is for 20 years. He said, this is only for 20 years. And I mean, I, I was mind-boggled. I couldn't have gone through that in a week. That's how many planes had disappeared and how many stories had been written and how many search, not for a high-profile figure like, uh, like Boggs and Begich, but just bush pilots that had disappeared. Unlike Lind, Alan Dodds-Frank, a reporter for the Anchorage Daily News, was well-versed in covering aviation disasters. Turns out the one thing you really learn as a reporter in Alaska is how to cover a plane crash. So not long after I got there, a troop plane chartered, uh, I think it was a Flying Tiger charter, carrying troops to Vietnam crashed at the end of the Anchorage, Alaska International Airport runway. And I think 49 people died. They were burned up in the crash. The plane was fully loaded with fuel and caught fire when it hit something at the end of the runway because it didn't get up in time. So covering a plane crash was a big deal in Alaska. And um, and so you, when you covered that first crash, uh, were you there on the scene right after it went down? I, I, not only was I on the scene, I, I had been uh, out. A bunch of us had been out. One of our my colleagues was sitting in the Captain Cook Hotel Crow's Nest Bar and sort of saw the crash from the bar, which was the highest point in Anchorage at the time. And uh, so we all scrambled out to the airport. I remember going out there, was a, there was a snowstorm, and I was wearing loafers, which turned out to be nuts because I uh, ended up getting minor frostbite. And I remember pacing off in my loafers in about a foot of snow or more um, how far off the runway the plane had gone before it stopped and it was like a half a mile and I was putting one foot in front of the other you know to measure it exactly and then I remember going into the hangar and counting the, the bodies there were like lumps of charcoal with shrunken combat boots on it was really grim and smelled horrible. 
That experience stayed with Dodds-Frank for decades, especially as he covered 9-11 for CNN, only blocks from the World Trade Center when it collapsed. In 1972, it had been his tenacious reporting that helped shape the search for Boggs and Begich. The search, the first day, was in part based on my reporting because I figured, I, I calculated what the flight pattern was, or should have been, to Juno, and um, called every place on the ground along the way. And one of them was a little town called Whittier, Alaska, which is on the, on the sea, I mean, in the Inland Passage, but it, it's one big building that was a secret building during World War II. So there's a, in the middle of nowhere, in this fjord, there is a 12-story building that was hidden from Japanese forces, I guess. To this day, about half the population of Whittier still lives in this single building, now called the Begich Towers. The morning the congressman vanished, several local residents heard a plane flying overhead, according to Dodds-Frank. If true, that's an important clue. No other flight passed over Whittier around that time. It would mean that the missing plane made it through Portage Pass, past Whittier, and onto Prince William Sound. The search shifted from the pass to the sound. So I went out in this glass-nosed plane, which was an observer plane that used to be used during the war and flies really low, like 50 feet above the water or 500 feet, depending on where you're looking, what the visibility is, looking for debris. What was it like for you to be on that plane over the sound? It, it was really dramatic, and it gave me a real feel for what it is like during wartime when you're hunting an enemy from not far off the ground and, and flying as slow as you can, but that's still 120 miles or 130 miles an hour. So you cover a lot of territory, and you can actually see all kinds of things. I mean, you can see a, a, a soda can floating in the water at that speed and height. So it was a pretty thorough search. I, I don't have any doubt that they, the government did everything it could to try to find them. Jim Shook, an Alaska state trooper, was also searching the sound by air. Well, we were in the department's Bremen Goose, and we came over the pass of Goodyear and began uh, what our assigned grid search was. And we did a grid search with the Goose and uh, actually came close to um, an SR-71 blue, uh, Blackbird. Oh, while, while you were in the air? Yes. What Shook spotted, the SR-71 Blackbird, was a top-secret spy plane. It was a technological marvel, capable of flying higher than 80,000 feet at a speed of 2,000 miles per hour. And it had the ability to photograph more than 60,000 square miles of terrain per hour. The radio um, crackled with the SR-71's pilots uh, giving us his position and that he would be passing from our right to our left that he was at a higher altitude, and uh, we acknowledged that, and I saw this small speck to the south, and then a blur go by and a speck to the north, and of course we were in a position to see quite a distance in both directions, and uh, the speed was blinding, of course. That was a pretty interesting part of the search. But um, we were covering as much area as, as we were assigned, plus a little bit, and uh, we were actually in a bowl, in a tight, tight turn, in a bowl alongside the mountain. 
on the northern side, I think, of uh, Prince William Sound. And uh, as we were in this tight turn to the left, both engines quit. And uh, it turns out that the pilot had forgotten to transfer fuel. And um, as we were plummeting toward here, um, he started pumping fuel from <clears throat> one tank to another, and the engines caught, and um, he firewalled the throttle, of course, and it took both of us to pulling on the yoke. You know, I've got my own yoke on my side. And it took both of us to pull out of the, out of the dive, and we uh, landed. We were both pretty well shook up and uh, sat there for a while, and at the time I was a smoker, unfortunately, but anyway, we sat there and smoked both of us for oh, probably 20 minutes and then took off again and continued our grid search. Shook had plenty of experience investigating plane crashes, including a very memorable one that occurred a year or two before the congressman vanished. You know, there was a, there was a plane crash of an F-27, a Fairchild, um, up at Pedro Bay, um, gosh, back in, what was it, 70 or 71. I was given the job of guarding uh, the bodies at the Coolis Air Guard Base. And they brought all the frozen bodies in, wrapped in plastic. And my fellow troopers, my sergeant, because I was just a green rookie, they turned all but one light off in that huge hangar and told me I had to turn the bodies all night so they thawed for autopsy purposes in the morning. And I was, I've never been so frightened in my life. They gave me a pair of boots because they said it would be so slimy I'd have to wade through the viscera. And, oh, God. Then, of course, an hour later, they called me from the office and said they were just kidding. Spending <laughs> a night with over 20 dead bodies, rolling and thawing and moaning and so forth. Oh, man, I'll tell you. That was my introduction to dead bodies. <laughs> As the days ticked on, searchers still hadn't found any sign of the missing plane. The search for House Democratic leader Hale Boggs, now in its eighth day, moved today to the Gulf of Alaska. An Air Force plane spotted debris in the Gulf in an area near the flight path of the plane that disappeared on a flight from Anchorage to Juneau with Boggs on board. A Coast Guard helicopter was sent to look for the debris, and it reports that the debris is orange-colored. The plane on which Boggs was traveling was orange-colored. Searchers spotted many other things, too, including a wrecked sailboat, an orange rock shaped like a plane, a school of jellyfish, a log that looked like a plane wing, a smudge on a glacier, half a plastic pail, shadows, a piece of orange wood, a rock slide, a discoloration in the snow, and a piece of styrofoam. Ultimately, nothing turned out to be from the missing plane, nor did any sign of it show up in photos captured by the SR-71 Blackbird a sense of despair started to set in. The Air Force indicated today that it may soon call off its search in Alaska for House Majority Leader Hale Boggs. The plane carrying Boggs disappeared on a flight from Anchorage to Juneau 12 days ago. Frustrated, authorities reviewed other leads they had initially deemed less important, including some from the general public. 
Early on, the Air Force had detected two emergency signals. The first was weak, 150 miles northeast of Anchorage, nowhere near the planned flight path. The second, west of Juneau, lasted for 40 minutes, but neither could be pinpointed with accuracy. The Coast Guard had also taken a report on October 18th from loggers near Juneau, who heard a light plane passing overhead, followed by a loud boom. But the loggers had heard the sound before the missing Cessna could have made it that far, authorities determined. Another dead end. Meanwhile, psychics started to flood the military and the families of the missing men with tips. Dear Mrs. Hale Boggs, one letter began, the Lord showed me a vision. The missing men were 25 miles southeast of Anchorage, it said. They only have a few bullets left for the gun, and they have dug a place in the side of a cliff or a mountain where the plane was forced to land, and they climb up there on a ladder to keep animals from getting to them. Lindy got other bizarre letters too, including from someone who had a vision of a man in a rose-colored suit, and a woman who wrote that her method was, quote, particularly suited to the semi-Arctic and Arctic areas. The military discounted nearly all of these odd tips, save for one, a curious call the Coast Guard received from a man in California. Draw a line from Anchorage to Juneau, the man said. Head west from Juneau for 256.5 miles, crossing Yakutat Bay and Malaspina Glacier, and 11.4 miles from the glacier, draw a line to the coast. Go back and forth along the line for 10 miles. The plane is in that area. Two men are still alive. Investigators took this lead seriously, in part because the tipster had a military background. The FBI dispatched a team to interview him at his house. According to an FBI report, which didn't disclose his name, the man was about 35 years old, 6'3", and 215 pounds, with dark hair and an injured left arm. Investigators described him as rational, extremely intelligent, but somewhat strange. He claimed he got information on the specific crash location from a friend who had access to experimental electronic equipment. It's unclear if the military double-checked the spot he pinpointed, which is near Icy Bay, a remote body of water, 65 miles northwest of the town of Yakutat. But it was likely scanned in some capacity, at least once, by search planes. On November 7th, as the search ground on, President Nixon defeated Senator George McGovern in a landslide re-election victory. The missing congressmen were also re-elected. Two men elected yesterday probably will never take their seats. The House Democratic leader, Hale Boggs of Louisiana, and Representative Nick Begich of Alaska disappeared in an airplane accident in Alaska three weeks ago. Barring a miraculous survival, there will be special elections to replace them. Two weeks later, as the search entered its final days, Nick Begich's wife, Peggy, received a disturbing letter pasted together from newspaper clippings. Your husband, Mr. Begich, an American-Croatian-Alaska Democratic rep, has been assassinated by our organization. He and others aboard will not be found. Reason? Criminally insane nature of his pact with American-Croat separatists. Next time on Missing in Alaska. These two events, in coordination with one another, actually very quickly marked, I think, an important turning point for Croatian terrorists, this idea that there are no innocent victims. As we conclude this episode, I'm giving you four more tasks. First, help me figure out whether or not any of the ham operators who heard the mysterious transmission the evening the plane vanished are still alive. I know that two, Roy Harris and Jack Fonts, have died. 
I'm not sure, though, about the other four, all of whom lived in California. Al Miller and Victor Parker of Nevada City, Ronald Crawford of Olivehurst, and Joe Tatum of Butte. Second, the Los Angeles TV station KNXT, now known as KCBS, conducted interviews in Nevada City and aired a report on the ham operators on either October 17th or 18th, 1972. I haven't been able to find a video of the report. Maybe you can help. Third, help me find out what happened to photos taken by the SR-71 Blackbird. It's possible that they've been destroyed, but documents I obtained from the Air Force didn't make clear their final fate. If you work for the Air Force, you're welcome to contact us anonymously. Finally, help me identify the tipster who phoned in the alleged location of the wrecked plane, citing information from experimental electronic equipment. His name was redacted in an FBI file I obtained, but for some reason, his phone number wasn't. And it's an important clue, perhaps the only one at this point that can help us identify him. His number was 378-5243. I'm not sure about the area code, but since he called the Long Beach Coast Guard Station, let's assume for now that the right one is 213. So again, his number would have been 213-378-5243. See if you can find that in a California phone book from 1972. An interesting side note, by 1974, that particular number belonged to the anti-abortion group Right to Life, but I'm not sure if it did in 1972. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-MIA-TIPS. That's 1-833-642-8477. Again, 1-833-642-8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccant is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. You can find me on Twitter at at John Walzak. J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. Footage for this episode was provided by CBS, NBC, KTVF, and the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. Special thanks to the Elmer E. Rasmussen Library at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and Tracy Lilliquist at the Doris Foley Library for Historical Research in Nevada City, California. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media.